and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Chagiga, daf Dalid, page four. So I'm going to start with the first part of the daf, which is, I would say, more halachic in nature. And Yerdena will take the second half of the daf, which is more agadic in nature, which is, a, you think, a pretty good divide. Um, the, the first half of the daf, in its halachic probing of the Mishnah, right, it cites the Mishnah, I'd say it's pretty anti-PC in the current in our modern milieu, where we begin with a tumtum and androgynous. Again, we'll recall that a tumtum is one who is said to, and the, the details of this get more complicated within the Gemara and certainly the Halacha, but basically that a tumtum has neither sets of genitalia and androgynous has both male and female genitalia. So the Gemara wants to ask, what is this big deal that the Mishnah is listing all of these different cases? Right, that all of these people are going to be excluded from the mitzvah of Re'iyah. And the the Gemara here says, Zachor lahutziyat hadashim, Zachorcha lahutziyat tumtum v'adroginus. Kol Zachorcha lerabot etaktanim. There are three different places where we end up with a verse referring to the males, and then we use those verses, or Chazal use those verses, to exclude other populations, meaning... Once you have a sep- uh, specifically designated population, the implication is that not that specifically designated public po- population is is excluded from whatever the requirement might be. So, for example, we have here Zachor, and this is from Shmot Kaf Gimel. When it says Zachor, it's going to exclude the women, and then when it says Kol Zachor, I'm sorry, when it says Zachor Cha. Then it excludes excludes tumtum androgynous, and then when it says kol zecharcha, um, we come it comes to include to include um, the male minors because somehow kol right will be to come to include the word kol. So Amar Mar Mar says zachor One second, you have a whole big limud, you have a whole big teaching here to exclude the women. You don't need, meaning from the verse, right, where it says males, you don't need that. What do I need a verse for? I already know there's a general principle that applies across the board just about that positive time-bound commandments are restrict, or women are exempt from positive time-bound commandments. So why do I need to teach that the women are excluded here from the requirement to appear at the temple on the holidays? Meaning that's the end of the limu. That's that's the basic principle, and we've seen this before. We've seen it in brachot. We've seen it in various different discussions, and we will continue to see it because the whole discussion of women and positive time-bound commandments is kind of fundamental to the question of how are women obligated and when are they not obligated in mitzvot. So I think this gemara here, you know, it, it makes a a fine point that there's no reason to have a specific verse to exclude the women when there's already a given that the women would be excluded. So the Gemara answers. It's strict. No, no, of course it's necessary. Of course I'm adding in. The Gemara just says it's strict. It's necessary. You might have come to think that the same way that the women are obligated to appear in Hakel, at the time of the gathering of the people for the mitzvah of Hakel. So maybe you would think that the women are also included here in the mitzvah of of coming to appear at the time of the holiday. Maybe you're going to think that about the holidays as well, 
Kamashwan, so therefore we have an explicit teaching to tell us to the contrary, that women in fact are exempt. Um, okay, so then the Gemara goes on to to discuss the more particular, again, the greater particulars about the tumtum and the, uh, the androgynous and why it is, you know, how is it that we need to exclude these? Might we not just include, might we not just understand that once it says all your males, that anybody who's got a questionable status would not be included? And it comes to say, of course, that the androgynous who also has male genitalia, you might have thought that such a person would be included. And what I want to get to is the next bit um, about the women, um, because the excuse me, the mission itself says nashim Right, the women are exempt, and the and the, any slaves who have not been um, released, who have not been free, bishlama nashim amaran. So the Gemara here says, well, that's fine. The women make sense because we've already explained why you have to se- specify the women because of hakel. Fine, we've just said that. Why would you need to specify slaves? Meaning, don't we also know all the same exemptions for slaves that we already know the same way we knew them from women? Um, Meaning, for example, when we talk about slaves in general, we say, Rav Huda says that before the Lord your God, meaning you're supposed to appear before Hashem. So the 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 derivation here is to say, well, before the Lord your God, that means you have only just the one God. I'm sorry, just the one Lord. Right? It's not talking about any question about about the divine. It's saying that each person, you know, reports only to God, but slaves report to a human master even before they're allowed to report to God. So then one who has another master, meaning the slave was another master, is of course going to be exempt. Why do you need to specify that slaves who have not been freed are exempt? So the Gemara answers, I'm sorry, that's that's the Limud. The first Limud is to, to, to teach you that, I, I jumped the gun, to teach you that the, the slave who has another master is exempt. But now the Gemara is going to ask, as I've said, what do I need this verse for? Because we already know that the, the slaves are going to be exempt. Because we have a parallel that is drawn really nearly entirely across the board. There are a couple of exceptions, but as a general principle, that the Eved and the women and the women, Nashim, are obligated to the same things and exempt from the same things. So then Ravina comes and explains that we're talking about someone who is it's who has a much more um distinctive case. They're not fully slaved slaves because but they're not yet fully freed. Right, somebody who was a half slave and a half freed man. So then, so the Gemara says, well, one second, the Mishnah says very carefully that uh, slaves who are not freed, why bother specifying who are not freed if you mean that they're really half and half? Right? The Gemara says, if you mean that they were not freed at all, 
then why would you just say Avadim? Why would you ever include this longer, you know, detail? Not who cares, but but who cares? You don't need it. You understand what Avadim are. So the Gemara goes on to say, no, really, the Mishnah is talking about um, slaves who are not entirely Meshukharim. They're not fully fully released. Who is that? So therefore, we're talking about someone who is half and half, half a slave and half uh, and half a freed person. So, all in all, I feel like this Mishnah and the discussion of um, the mitzvah of Re'ia, the Aliyah Taregel, is on the one hand we know it's only you know it's only men and it's all men and fine, and now we're going to get into these particulars of who's excluded, how, and why. And I find it rather interesting that Chazal don't just leave it as a you know, well, are you male? Are you fully male? Done, right? They go into each case and explain, you might have thought that this reason would not apply, and in fact, it doesn't apply, but this other reason does apply, and so on, right? Meaning, each case, the women, the avadim, the tumtum, the drugs, each case, yesterday we had the chayresh, right? Each case is addressed in, in its own, like, honorary detail, and nobody ever says, like, but we already know this. It's a simple, straightforward thing. Why are you delving in? They, and I feel like each identity, each category of identity is treated with respect in this way. And I actually came to appreciate it beyond what might otherwise feel to me like that's not that's not our PC language. But I feel like maybe there's something more going on here and that it really does boil down to a matter of respecting each category in its own right and the handling of how does the halacha then apply to each different category. I agree with you. They really go into details to sort of show us that each category in itself has a lot of nuance. Like even within slaves, there's different types of slaves. Even within 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 uh, you know Androgynous and you know Timtum, there's different types. Um, and they want to be very very careful. I think in a way that it's sort of not a sweeping generalization, but that we have to go back to the text in order to understand what is really being excluded here. Uh, it's curious to me why they feel the text has to prove it in a way. Like, why wasn't it just to sort of say from the initial verse, you know, that it's calls, a, you know, basically calls a whore, right? Every male. And there's a lot of paying very close attention to like, you know, repetitions of words or, you know, how words fit into the psukim to sort of cover every single case. Um, I can't quite figure out what the motivation for that is. I don't know, Anne, if you well, have a... I can't speak to motivation, but what I'm left with is a sense that there's honor or respect, as I said, to given to each demographic um, because each one is taken seriously. And in, in the end, they're all excluded the same way they were in the Mishnah, but but in a in a more weighty kind of way. Yeah, right? like, I, I think that's consider. fair. Right? Like, it's not like, in other words, to be excluded is not just like the Torah saying, like, "Oh, you don't come." They really think about a little bit why, and that it has to be based on the language. I, I, I hear what you're saying. They want it. It has to have a little bit more depth to it than just saying, you know, they're not obligated. So, I, it's a very interesting play on words, um, but there's something like incredibly anthropomorphic about it. Um, that this idea of like re'iyah, right? This very unusual mitzvah um, that we have to like literally, literally appear before God in the Beit Hamikdash, right? 
But part of that appearance is so that God can actually see us also. And I can't think of another mitzvah, right, where we have like such an anthropomorphic description about what's occurring in that mitzvah, right? Like when we talk about mots mitzvot, so it's like you eat matzah so that, you know, and you eat your matzah because you were obligated to eat matzah or you don't cook on Shabbos because the Torah told you you're not, you know, you keep Shabbos in a certain way. And Chazal, you know, the rabbis, uh, you know, learned the text a certain way to tell us how do we actually keep Shabbos. But this drusha that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zahavi makes is that like part of the mitzvah is that like you, you, you like appear so that you can be seen by God. And again, I can't think of, we don't, you know, it's Dafyomi, so as we always say, and like, we don't have enough time to sort of like unpack it, but it's fascinating to have a, the purpose of a mitzvah, I think at least be described like in an anthropomorphic way, like that there's something God does as part of the mitzvah and God is being described with human characteristics. I'm curious, you know, for the for the further study that we're not going to do right now, we would look into Rambam's approach versus the people who take a more, you know, literal description, you know, those who describe God as having a body, even though everybody knows that it's not quite as that, right? Meaning Rambam is so strictly anti-anthropomorphism or so strictly saying that any time there is such a discussion, it is only the language and not anything real about God, but he's not the only opinion. So I'd really like to see them, you know, duke it out on this topic. I'm curious if they do. Yeah. Um, and then I want to read the next passage here. Rav Huna ki mati lahai So when Rav Huna would get to this verse, which could be read as either yir'eh, we'll see, or yir'eh shall appear, he would cry. Amar, and he would say, So he says, how could it be that a slave whose master expects to see him, right, that eventually the master will distance himself from him and not want him to come anymore, right? So what he's basically saying is, is that we have from this pasuk, right, from uh, from Shmot chapter 20, 23, verse 17, which is the mitzvah uh, of Re'iyah being seen, right, and that God will see you, right, that the idea that the slave is supposed to be seen by the master, right, obviously meaning that we, you know, are seen by our master, but that eventually the master, meaning God, will distance himself and not want to see us anymore. And how does he know that? So here he reads a pasuk from Yeshayahu, chapter 1, verse 12, right? When you come to appear before me, who has required this at your hand to trample my courts, right? And so the idea here, even though this pasuk was cited earlier in a positive way, here it's cited in a negative way, um, but he's basically saying that it's sort of saying like you're you're saying that you want to come and I don't really want you to come because you're just really coming to trample uh, my court, my courts, meaning the courtyard of the temple. And then it goes on, Rav Huna ki mati lahai bachi, right? And so now they have another pasuk that when Rav Huna would cry, um, so this is from Devarim chapter 27, verse seven, you shall sacrifice shlamim, right? And you shall eat there. Right. And the whole concept of shlamim, it comes from the word shalom, is this particular sacrifice that the person who brings the shlamim eats, the Kohen eats some, but it's supposed to bring peace. That's what it literally means to you and God. 
So it says, how could it be that a slave whose master wants him to eat at his table, eventually the master wants to distance himself from him. And then he again quotes a Pasuk from Yeshayahu. It's actually the previous Pasuk from the Pasuk before. It's chapter 1, verse 11, um, where it says, Lamali rov zivechem yomar Hashem. Very famous Pasuk. To what purpose? Why would I want all of your offerings, right, to the Lord? That eventually God says, I really don't want your offerings anymore. Um, and then what goes on from here is a whole series. They go through many different rabbis of different psukim that basically made them cry. And the setup is essentially that it's like one pasuk says something that basically explains sort of like the special relationship between God and B'nai Yisrael and the Jewish people. And then another pasuk comes and sort of like undermines and says, well, now God feels the opposite about us. And that pasuk made some cry. So first of all, I related to this on a very emotional level. I mean, those of you who listen to podcasts know I cry in the podcast all the time. I'm a very emotional person. So I was sort of taken by this, that like, it's sort of an expression like these rabbis were like moved to tears um, by, uh, by some of these teachings. Um, and, and I think the other pieces is just sort of seeing through these teachings, sort of the, the notion that like um, our relationship with God changes, right? That like at times it seems like God wants to be close with us. And at times it seems God does not want to be close with us. And I think it makes sense that this passage appears, you know, this whole series of psukim that gets cited in uh, the Masacha that deals with the mitzvah of Re'ia, right? The whole concept of Re'ia basically being seen during the holidays, I think is a mitzvah that sort of uh, reflects like the intimacy between us and God, right? That three times a year, right, the men are required to basically go up and, and literally make an appearance before God right? They have to be seen. And that seems like a very, very close relationship. And so I think like, remember, these rabbis are describing, you know, our relationship or sort of viewing our relationship in a period of time where there's no Beit HaMikdash anymore, where this mitzvah of Re'iyah, of being seen, can no longer be fulfilled. And so I think there's great pain in that. And acknowledging that, like, there are certain mitzvot that just cannot be fulfilled anymore, because there is no temple. And that, and I think that's why we see them crying over these verses, because on the one hand, they're reflecting on, well, this was the relationship that we were promised, but this is the relationship that I'm actually experiencing today. Um, and it's not the relationship that I actually want. And so I think one of, the, again, we always talk about this at the beginning of Masachet, which is like, you know, how is it going to play out? For me, at least, I'm picking up on a little bit of a theme here, which is, this is a masachet entirely devoted to a mitzvah that doesn't have a version of it in a post-temple way, right? Like we know, yes, we don't bring a korban Pesach anymore, but we still have Pesach, right? We, we, we eat matzah, we do things at the Seder that are zecher l'migdash, that help us remember the migdash. But if you think about it, Re'iyah doesn't have anything like this, like this mitzvah of Re'iyah, right, of going to the Beit HaMikdash, the korban that you have to bring, do anything to remember that. There's no way that it could be replaced. Um, and I wonder if that of this series of psukim with the, of the teachings of the crying, these rabbis who cry when they sort of read one, pas, one pasuk and then another pasuk and realize that our fundamental relationship with God has changed, that maybe that's why Re'iyah doesn't have a replacement. 
because nothing can actually replace it. It's not even good enough to say, well, sort of remember that we had this mitzvah. This is something that just cannot exist without a temple. Like when that relationship with God no longer has its physical manifestation on earth, it just, it's not something that we can do or even remember, uh, you know, even in a diluted way. It just doesn't exist anymore. I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. I feel like there have been other times, not just in Psachim, but throughout, where we've talked about the fact that Chazal were kind of yearning for an experience and, you know, the mitzvot and everything that applied, pertained to the temple that they couldn't ever have experienced, except for, you know, maybe some of the very early Tanayim. Maybe we talked about it more in Shkalim. I'm, I'm blanking as where exactly it came up because I feel like it keeps coming up. And I think that the way you've described this now about Chagiga, that there was no possible replacement, I think is very powerful. And I feel like maybe, you know, that's exactly their experience. And that's why they cried. There's nothing to substitute. Right. And there's not, and so I, I'm curious to see how this theme, it may not get picked up on again in the Masafat, but if they do come back to this again while discussing Ria, because it's really not something we do anymore. And it's whole concept to me, at least is sort of shrouded in mystery because it's just not, a, it's not a mitzvah that you really think about anymore. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. So I want to move on to two pieces on Amud Bet. Uh, and the first one is a brisa. I'm not going to read the first part of the brisa, which tries to explain two of the exemptions to people who do not need to do re'iyah, the person who's tame and a person who's blind. I'm just going to read the part about the person who's blind. Rabbi Yochanan ben Dehavai Omer, Mishum Rabbi Yehuda. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Dehavai says in the name Rabbi Yehuda, it's interesting, it's a Tana that we don't, I at least have never seen this name before. And so the halacha he's teaching us is that a blind person who just even has one eye that's blind uh, does not need to do the mitzvah of re'iyah, of appearing in the Beit HaMikdash during one of the regalim, during one of the festivals. And what they do here is, is how does he get this reading? He takes the pasuk, from Shemot, where we have the commandment of Re'iyah altogether. And remember that in the Torah itself, uh, the psukim, the verses are not written with nikudot. So we have a tradition, right, of what the vowelization is of uh, many of the words. But sometimes we'll see these types of uh, sort of drashot, sort of these explanations where they play on the words themselves. They give a different vowelization to a word, and then it has a different meaning. So traditionally, we read this Pasuk and Shemot as Yir'eh, right? That all of the men, uh, you know, that uh, they shall see God, right? Yir'eh, they will go up and they shall see God. But we could also pronounce it as Yir'eh, which means that all the men shall be seen by God. So very different emphasis. If we read it the way we traditionally read it as Yir'eh, right? Then it means that uh, all the Zahor, right? All the men um, shall see God. But if we read it as Yerah, then it will be that all the men shall be seen by God. So the idea here is that when the men fulfill this mitzvah of Re'iyah, they are being seen by God. It's not just about them going to see God. Kederach Shabbat Lirot, Kach Ba Leirot. 
And so it explains here that in the manner that God comes, right, basically to the Beit HaMikdash to see the pilgrims who come, right? Uh, and that's, you know, using the pronunciation year eh, right? Kachba leraot. So God also comes to the temple to be seen by the pilgrims. And then this is the part that relates to the blind person, right? That uh, just as a per, uh, God comes to see the pilgrims with God's eyes, right? Basically, you know, a nav here is the emphasis with two eyes, right? Which is the way most people see is that you have to see with two eyes, not with one eye. So too, God must be seen with the pilgrims' two eyes. And that's how we get the exclusion that therefore somebody who is blind in one eye does not need to do this mitzvah v'ria because you need to see God the same way that God will see you. And presumably what it's saying here is that God sees you with God's two eyes.